Welcome to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. I'm Kevin Prying. This program is a presentation of Metropolitan. This program is a presentation of Metropolitan Congregations United. MCU is a community organization that brings together religious congregations, community groups, and individuals to work for a common purpose to create a better life for all residents of the St. Louis region. We work at the intersection of race, economy, political power, gender, and the structures of oppression at work within us individually, within our organization, and within the community. We are working towards building people's control of the government, building community control of the economy, expanding the public sphere, and creating structural racial equity. This program is part two of our conversation with JMO, organizer and lead campaign strategist for MCU, and Alan Harris-Dalt, a leader with the MCU Legislative Task Force. We will continue our discussion of what's going on with the Missouri State Legislature. Today's topics are defending the teaching of true American history and equity in our public schools and defending the initiative petition process. Welcome, JMO and Alan. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Kevin. It is great to be with you. Good to be here. The first thing we'll talk about is equity in education. Uh, a lot of people are calling it critical race theory. There are at least 10 bills that have been introduced in both houses. Uh, so what are these bills trying to do? When I was in seminary, I had a, a professor who said something that I will never forget. Where you stand determines what you see. So what are these bills trying to do? My answer to that depends on where I'm, where I'm standing, where I'm sitting right now. These bills are trying to divide us based on uh, a racially oriented animosity toward one another so that the people who are behind this work, and I'm not talking about any particular legislators, I'm talking about the, the super wealthy, the super powerful who have been trying to drive a wedge between people so that they can keep their power and keep their money, and they're not concerned with the rest of us. While they are distracting us with fighting about how someone feels about talking about race in the classroom, we're not focusing on how we can come together to reclaim our power as people who are part of a united community. Someone from another vantage point would say that this is a, a set of bills that are looking at how we address concepts like equity and fairness and equality and race and history in our educational settings. You know, these, these are important topics to address. How, how do we look at one another from our different social locations? How do we interact with one another as part of a diverse society? We need to have answers to these. It's just that the answer that these bills provides is, oh, just don't talk about it and things will work themselves out. We've had... 200 and almost 50 years of not talking about race or not talking about it in constructive ways. That hasn't worked. It's time for us to talk about race. What does it mean for people of other genders, other races, other sexual orientations, other anything? All of those parts of our identities come together and make us who we are. And it's really easy for us to be divided when we have different labels for those identities. We've, we've done really well at dividing ourselves and these bills continue to divide us. 
I really hope that we can find a way to knock them down because I want a Missouri, I want a St. Louis area where we come together, where we do great things together, because there is so much potential for our region. There's so much potential for our state. We have so much going for us when we can work together. And so bills like this that try to say, oh, we just don't want to talk about that. It, it might make some people feel uncomfortable. People feel uncomfortable every day. Let's talk about it. Let's find a way to get to, to bond with each other and, and allow whatever discomfort we might feel about things that have happened in the past to help us come together to build a better future. I, I think that, um, that we at MCU have something very important to contribute to this conversation. Uh, we understand that, that if you're going to be healed, you actually have to practice self-reflection and confession. You know, many of our churches have daily spirituality practices that involves self-examination uh, and, and practice corporate confession. Things have not been right in our country. Uh, we, we were not founded uh, with everyone uh, equal before the law. Um, we had people who were enslaved in this country. Uh, upon their release from slavery, um, a whole set of structures were put in place to, to favor those who were white and to uh, continue to, uh, to suppress, hold down, and disadvantage uh, those who were of African uh, ancestry. Uh, certainly, there's you know, also the history around Native Americans here. What do we do to promote actual healing and unity? Church communities know that you have to actually admit when you've done wrong if you want to make progress. And that reconciliation includes, uh, you know, in, in the words of the gospel, if you're about to make your offer your gift at the altar and you remember that your neighbor has something against you, you know, go to your brother and be reconciled. And so uh, we, we have to actually talk about this stuff uh, if, if we're ever going to move forward uh, and, until we have admitted what has been done. Uh, how, how can we have the unity that's needed to actually thrive as one, one nation? I think that, that's important because the, the backers of these bills use the language of unity, use the language of can't we all get along, uh-huh. but they're, they, they are skipping the process right. of, of acknowledgement of, of repentance in the word yeah. in, in our in our Christian language that we use, um, and then reconciliation, um, and that that's a process, and it's it's not just putting your hands over your ears and pretending something didn't happen. Yeah, there's another kind of spirituality that's precious to me, and and that's the the spirituality of people who are recovering from addictions, uh, and and one of the slogans in in uh, recovery programs is we are only as sick sick as our secrets. You know, if we keep secret the, the racial injustice of our past and the structural inequality that, that you know, segregated our neighborhoods, uh, distributed uh, wages unequally, distributed wealth unequally, uh, barred some of us from owning housing and, and uh, um, barred some of us from, from having uh, decent schools. If we hide that history, we cannot help but be sick. Secrets make us sick. We have to... Uh, expose um, our, our past to sunlight uh, and hope that that sunlight disinfects that past and that, that we can uh, build a new relationship that's a, a, a truly uh, equitable partnership in, instead of just pretending, uh, well, everything is fine now. Uh, let's, let's just 
just move forward. Well, if we don't tell the truth about the past, that's pretty impossible. And where do things stand with these these types of bills right now? What's what's kind of been happening in committees and and how likely are they to to move forward? They are at various stages. Uh, There are a few in the the committee stage. Uh, Some have had a public hearing, which is the first step for uh, a committee. Uh, There was a a hearing in the House uh, a few weeks back, and there were three bills that were were presented together, I think 1995 and 1474 and 1747. And uh, two of those bills especially got a lot of, of criticism. In fact, there was a record set for testimonies presented on a bill to a House committee, there were, I believe, a thousand people who submitted testimony against at least one of those bills, and mm-hmm. and several people submitted testimony against multiples. Um, there was that much uh, uh, rejection of these practices, the and and rejection of these bills from the public. So far, those bills have not made it through committee, but they've not been stopped yet either. There's, there's sort of the somebody hit the pause button on a lot of those. Let's call that what it is, Alan. That's a success story. Hmm, you know, the, yes. The, uh, some of our MCU leaders were down there. Uh, you know, you, you, you weighed in on this. You, you helped to send a letter to the, to the committee. Uh, there was such an outcry. Uh, I've been a legislator. I know that that when you want to pass something, normally how what happens is it's heard one week, it passed out of committee. The next week goes to rules either that same week or by the next week, and then it's on the House calendar within three weeks. It's been about a month since those those bills were heard. Uh, they are still not voted out of committee yet. There's a, a House committee substitute that's been circulated that has 44 pages, I think it is. So there's discussion happening about whether that's going to be the form that gets passed. But any anything that gets delayed a month, it's a it's a very positive sign. And that, that delay was made possible by a massive outcry by a public that says Black Lives Matter. The truth about our history matters. And uh, we want uh, our children to be allowed to learn uh, the real history of, of our country and for every child to feel uh, valued in our classrooms. Uh, and and that is a success story. Uh, it, it's it's important that that we recognize that we made that delay happen. Uh-huh. We the people. Um, so uh, we need more of that. And that that's a good lesson too, because in the Missouri uh, legislature, there's a supermajority of one party, and this has been an issue championed by that one party. E- enough people spoke out that it put the brakes on something that a lot of people, I think, thought was was going to sail through pretty quickly. Um, but that's a good lesson that even with that super majority, super minority status, that enough voices raised do make a difference. We do still have that power to be able to make that difference. Yes, we do. Right, right. That's right. And, and people told their own stories of how they were impacted uh, you know, I watched some of that testimony and was just so moved by it. I, you know, I, I when I was a state representative, my district had uh, a very high pop- population of Vietnamese American citizens, one of the two districts in the state that had the most Vietnamese Americans in it. And so I, I remember watching a young Vietnamese American woman testify to that committee and, and talk yeah. about how empowered she felt as an American citizen that she could go exercise her rights like that. 
And so uh, a lot of people, I think, spoke out for the first time. Uh, and and I, th- I think this is just the growth of the organizing that we've been doing. Many of the MCU congregations have started some type of anti-racism committees within their congregations. Some of them do Black Lives Matter vigils outside their, their churches or on street corners near their churches on a regular basis. You know, uh, organizing is happening happening in congregations uh, around the need to be anti-racist, not, not to just be passively, no, I'm not a racist or whatever, but to be anti-racist. And, uh, and, and that is just building and building. And I, I think that what we saw on, on these, uh, the, the, the bills from uh, Representative Ritchie and Representative Schroer, uh, and also one that was recently heard from Representative Dogan, uh, was, was the public uh, now mobilized on that issue. And, and that's, that's a real victory. But, but we, we don't need to like, uh, you know, sit back and say, well, we've done that now. Uh, we, we, we need to keep growing it. We need to reach out to others and bring them into the movement and tell them the story of what happened. That, you know, we've managed to slow this bill down. Uh, there's a long way for the, those bills to go, even if they pass them out next week out of committee. They've still got to get through rules. They've still got to be debated on the House floor. And they've got to get through a Senate that right now is, is pretty broken. The, the Senate's not passing anything right now. So uh, there's a long way for those bills to go. There's a lot of ways we can kill that very bad legislation, but we got to stay on our toes and we've got to keep organizing and bringing more people into the movement. I, I also don't want us to lose sight of the fact that this is, this is an issue that's uh, what, what people who are better connected to organizing than me call something that's been astroturfed, right? So this is, this is fabricated. So there's a, a filmmaker named Christopher Rufo who, you know, did some work and started to, to look around and, and uh, had some, some friends that he wanted to, to, sort of make a mess of things with and he realized that oh this this thing called critical race theory it's a way of looking at laws how race intersects with legal proceedings right it's 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 something that that has a really important place in legal analysis and it comes out of critical theory which has also been really good for uh, finding more equity and creating more equity in our societies. Well, Rufo realized this thing that nobody knows about that sounds really scary, critical race theory. And, and as, as I've heard one, one person say, it's not critical they have a problem with. It's not theory they have a problem with. What's left? This idea of critical race theory is out there. And he said, if we tie everything we don't like about the the advances that people of color have made over the last few years that the black lives matter movement has has helped to to bring out if we if we can combat those protests after so many people were killed you know list of names sandra bland eric garner george floyd right they needed a way to push back against the progress we were making and so Christopher Rufo figured out this critical race theory little buzzword. It's better than politically correct. Politically correct doesn't have the same power it used to in right wing Confederate circles. And woke just doesn't have enough substance to it. They don't have the power that they used to. And, and he realized that. So he said, we need a new term critical race theory. It's just vague enough and just scary enough that we can tie everything to it and scare people with it. And it's working. 
a little bit. Not here in Missouri, though. We're pushing back. And so, my goodness, it's so wonderful to be part of a diverse, powerful movement that is saying, "Uh uh-uh, not here. We're not standing for that. You're not going to mess with our kids. You're not going to mess with our teachers. You're not going to mess with our books. We know that we want a world where different points of view are considered, where people of all races, all genders, all religions can come together and where the marketplace of ideas can be a setting for greatness, for building each other up. It, to me, the, it, the phrase itself, it, it, the interesting thing about it is it, it, it's hard to even, when we're having this discussion, when I put bullet points together, mm-hmm. to decide what to call the, the pushback against that, because critical race theory is just a phrase and it's compact. And from a marketing standpoint, it, it works. But then the opposite of that isn't anti-critical race theory. Not at all. No, it, 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 yeah. and it's, you can't really say anti-anti-critical race theory. Right. We're, we're fighting critical race theory ban bills, which is right. very confusing. So right. what? And, yeah. and, and because critical race theory isn't actually what's being taught, Mm-hmm. To give that phrase yeah. oxygen actually yeah. helps that side. So yeah. I think it's encouraging that so many people know what's happening, that yeah. it, it is not a confusing issue uh, right. for the people right. who showed up, yeah. um, that, that they're seeing through the, the marketing speak uh, right. that that's happening here. Yeah. Some so, of the educators uh, said uh, to us the other day that they they wish that the first impulse hadn't been to say, well, the, who's teaching critical race theory in Missouri? Nobody really right. does. This isn't mm-hmm. an issue. And that now they wish that hadn't been their first impulse. It's the truth. Places aren't teaching crit- critical race theory, especially in like elementary or high school or anything like that. You might take a, a college course in it. You might take an, an elective at a high school area, uh, level, but it's, it's incredibly rare. Uh, and they said, you know, they now wish that they'd instead listed like the four principal points of critical race theory and said, well, which one of these do you think is not true? Because basically all exactly. of them are true. So, you know, exactly. which that, part that, of this don't you like? Or, you know, they, don't you, which part of this do you, would you claim is not a fact? That's <laughs> right, such an right. important thing to, to know, too, as we're fighting these battles, and, and they are battles. I, I do not like war imagery. It's overused, but this is a battle. We are Mm -hmm. up against forces that oppose what we want. And so we need to figure out how to fight this battle. And one of the key ways to do that is to say what you're for. Don't try to negate what somebody else uh, says that you're doing. Don't talk about what you're against so much. Say what you're for. If we talk about what we're for, people understand our values. And when people understand our values, they can find something there to connect with. We all want freedom. We all want honesty. We all want unity, except for the people who can use dishonesty and division to separate us so that they can keep their power. Yeah. I I was taught we had liberty and justice for all when I was a child, and it turned out that wasn't true. But that doesn't mean I stopped wanting it. I still want it. I want it to be realized. Some of those bills named specifically the 1619 Project is something that they want to stop schools from being able to use. Well, if you look at the 1619 materials, you'll find that some of our greatest product, uh, uh, progress toward becoming the kind of country that our founding documents said we, we ought to be has been made because of African heritage individuals 
who've led movements to demand that we live up to our own standards. And, and so we should be saying thank you. <laughs> we should be saying thank you that maybe this will be a country where liberty and justice is for all. And we mean all y'all when we say all. <laughs> I love how Dr. King talked about um, a check coming back marked insufficient funds. Right. Mm-hmm. That's exactly yeah. what you're talking about. And, right. and we can we can put that check back through the system and see if it comes. But we we got more funds now. Right. So right. let's let's run that check back through and, and let's be a country. Let's be a state where liberty and justice is for yeah. all, where That's it doesn't right. where your zip code doesn't change the, the percentage that you'll be happy, healthy, successful in the future. Let's work toward that great beloved community. So let's move on to the next one that we're looking to defend once again. And this is the initiative petition process. So this is a concept maybe not everybody's familiar with. Uh, Reminder listeners, uh, what is the initiative petition process and, and what is looking to be changed here? I bet you're right that if if you as a journalist went down the street with your microphone and said, so tell us what the initiative petition process is, a whole lot of people will go, huh? But if you ask them about, do you remember voting on a higher minimum wage? They go, oh, yeah, I voted for that. (laughs) And, and, uh, and, And so a lot of people have participated in it, but they didn't know what they were participating in. You can actually go to the Secretary of State website for the state of Missouri, sos.mo.gov. And uh, click on the uh, initiative petition uh, um, button in the election section of that website and get a document that spells out very clearly what has to be done. Uh, basically, this is the kind of thing that we did around closing the Medicaid coverage gap, the, the Affordable Care Act coverage gap that was leaving maybe 300,000 of our neighbors with low incomes out of having an affordable health care plan. Year after year, we went and talked to the legislature and we asked them, please pass a law changing the eligibility guidelines so that all of these neighbors with low wages that can't get into the Affordable Care Act and they are too wealthy to get into Medicaid because they make more than like $300 a month. We we ask and ask, you know, pass a law, change change this this standard, uh, get affordable coverage for our neighbors. uh, And then that didn't happen. So we went out and we circulated petitions and asked people to sign it. And the laws that are published there on the the website, what the rules are that have been established by the people in our state constitution, basically say that we have to gather signatures uh, in six out of the eight congressional districts. We have to gather um, uh, 5% of the number of people who voted in the last gubernatorial election in those six districts. If we're going to pass a new law, if we're going to pass a constitutional amendment, we have to gather 8% of the people that voted in the last gubernatorial election. So basically right now, we have to gather a a minimum of around 107,000 valid signatures of registered voters to change a law or about 176,000 valid signatures of registered voters uh, for a constitutional amendment. And that's to put it on a ballot for everybody to vote on it. And if it's it's voted by a, a simple majority, those things can happen. But there are bills in our state legislature right now that are trying to greatly limit our ability to do that. Um, So uh, some of them make it more expensive to file the paperwork. Some of them change it from six congressional districts to all eight. Uh, Some of them up the amount of of, uh, signatures you've got to collect, like from instead of uh, 8%, uh, 8%, making it 10%. Um, Some of them 
say that instead of um, a simple majority being able to pass something at the polls, that you have to have uh, a, a two-thirds majority, so 66.6% uh, of, of our neighbors voting for something to, to change the Constitution. Um, so there's just a real attack on this initiative petition process. It, to me, it's sort of like um, sour grapes on the part of the, of, a, of the General Assembly that's mad at us that we managed to close that Medicaid coverage gap and get health care affordable for so many of our neighbors that lacked it. And they're like, well, how dare you do an end run around us? We're going to fix this so you can't do that anymore. You all you know, passed a raise in the minimum wage. We didn't want to give a raise in the minimum wage. And you made that happen. You passed the clean amendment. How dare you stand up and, and practice direct democracy? We've got to put a stop to this. Uh, so to me, that's what's going on there. And uh, it makes me just uh, mad as heck. One thing that that doesn't get mentioned a lot about this, but that I've I've noticed is, you know, we we are really concerned about the initiative petition process because that affects that's that's democracy in action. That's mm-hmm. people all across the state saying, yes, I support this. I want this to happen. We should put it to a vote and see if it can can be made to happen. And there's also a process in the state legislature to do the same thing. They are not raising the standards for their process. They're raising the standards for ours. Again, Mm -hmm. keep them divided and you can keep your power. That's what they're trying to do. They're fine if their standards are lower than ours. Man, isn't that just a, a metaphor for what can be wrong in government? And I, I would love to see more people in government who want it to be good instead of who are trying to sabotage it. I want to see more people who care about the will of their voters instead of people who want to be able to choose their voters. Mm-hmm. I want to see democracy grow. I don't want to see everyone vote on every single thing. That's why we have elected officials in Jefferson City. But man, if that many people come to you and say, we need this, we need this. My neighbor is hurting. They can't get medical coverage. Their job won't provide it, but they are working. They can't get another job because there aren't other jobs that fit their the, the life that they're living. There are people who don't want to work for $7 an hour or whatever it may be, wherever they are, to be away from their kids and, and miss out on so much and come home with an aching back. You can't raise a family on that. You can't buy food and be home to eat it with your family on that. You can't put a roof over your head on $7 an hour. And so we said, we care about our neighbors. We want you to do something. You didn't. Okay, we'll do something. And now they want to take that away from us. And I think a thing to, to point out too, you said, the threshold for winning an election would be raised to two-thirds majority, so 66%, right. 66.7%. The bills that have, or, or the initiatives that have passed recently, there have been several of them that won by 60%, 61%, a very, very good uh, percentage of Missourians uh, in favor of raising the minimum wage, in favor of clean Missouri. But they would have failed- under the the new rules. And no initiative petition in the history of the state, from what I understand, has ever reached 66.7%. That's not not accurate. There there have been uh, about a dozen over the last uh, 20 or 30 years that have crossed that 70% threshold. Okay. The Hancock Amendment, 
that that some of the folks behind this love so much that limits our ability to increase taxes um, to fund the services that we need would not have passed. And some of the ones that passed by a huge amount of the public uh, to our shame were uh, bogus constitutional amendments that were really about driving base to the polls and that were about things that weren't real threats at all. One of them was about English as our official language, Mm -hmm. as if we were being overrun by people that were trying to get us to speak Russian or or Spanish or or whatever. Uh, That wasn't happening. But uh, uh, and then there was a religious freedom one. Uh, We already have religious freedom. It's written in the it's enshrined in the First Amendment of the Constitution. We didn't need to pass it again. It didn't establish anything new. But but it passed again and again by, I think, 80 some odd percent of the vote or something. But uh, it, it was one of those things that was to bamboozle people and to try to create this fear that somehow um, little kids are getting beaten up for carrying their Bible on the school bus or something that is not happening. Or if it is, it's already an illegal situation that can be dealt with. But by current law, you know, to our shame, we've been fooled on some things. Uh, where there's been a, a really big vote, but it hardly ever happens, as you said, and a two-thirds standard would be almost impossible to meet, uh, especially on some of these situations where the voices of the people were denied year after year, and we finally had to take the power into our own hands and put it on the ballot for a vote. Okay, thank you for that clarification. Uh, so what what is the status of, of these particular bills? Where are we standing with this? Well, the one that's moving along the best is uh, House Joint Resolution 79 uh, on uh, February 10th that passed by a vote of 98 to 53. Uh, I haven't got to see a a roll call on that, but when I see the number 53, that normally tells me that this is pretty much a party line vote uh, because that's about how many people there are in the minority uh, caucus, I I believe. Uh, And um, uh, HDR 79 uh, would change it where you have to get signatures in all uh, eight uh, congressional districts instead of six, uh, and that you would have to get uh, 10% uh, instead of 8% of signatures of people that voted in those uh, those districts, uh, and then that you'd have to have that two-thirds uh, approval. So we would be going from about 176,000 signatures of registered voters that we that we have to collect to um, over 400,000, I think close to 500,000 under this new system in order to put something on the ballot. So it it makes it a lot harder. Uh, That is now, you know, passed out of the House chamber, crossed over to the Senate chamber. uh, And so the process will start over there with a hearing on on the Senate side. However, the the Senate has shown absolutely no ability to work together uh, so far uh, this session. Nothing is moving on the Senate side. Uh, to, to date. And uh, there's a deep fracture uh, among the majority caucus senators over there uh, with a, uh, a very small subset of folks that label themselves a conservative caucus taking on the rest of their caucus. So uh, there's just nothing happening. So I, I, I don't know if they'll be able to get that through. It may take calling a previous question, you know, where they shut off debate to make it happen. But that can only happen a few times in the Senate each year because it uh, it leads to the senators going into a slowdown mode uh, where they just stall on everything. You know, for example, at the beginning of each day, they they say it's time to approve the House Journal. Uh, uh, shall we read it? And some senator will say, "Yes, I want it read," which takes hours. You know, and so uh, if any senator objects instead of approving the the Senate Journal, they have to read it. So they go into slowdown mode 
anytime the previous question is called. So he can only do it once or twice a year. I don't know if this, if this is something that will rise to that occasion or not. The other thing I, I wanted to uh, bring up for our listeners is that because this is House Joint Resolution, this means it is a proposal to change the state constitution, which ironically would then require a vote in November from the citizens to pass it. So even if everything goes the way the supporters of the bill have planned, passes the House, passes the Senate, signed by the governor, uh, it needs to actually meet the approval of the voters. And the governor doesn't have to sign an HJR. It would go, if if approved by both chambers, it could go straight to us to vote on uh, because it's, it's not the governor that makes it a law in that case, it's the people. So uh, so we, we would have the final say on it. So uh, we'll still have the chance to vote it down if, if they do manage to get it through. But that's going to take an educational effort because right. guess what they've got written into HJR 79? It says that only legal citizens get to vote so that they're gonna, it's going to be sold as this thing that there's somehow undocumented people voting and stealing elections or whatever. Uh, you know how a whole lot of folks voted to overturn the nonpartisan um, redistricting that was part of the clean amendment because it was it led with lobbyists can't give any money to politicians and people love that and so they only read the beginning of it and they voted based on on how the thing started so this thing's going to be led off with the people that get to vote on this have to be citizens so we will have to do careful education to make sure people don't stop reading after one paragraph when they go to vote on that right <laughs> That taps into how much money it's going to take to fight on either side of that. And these initiative petition resolutions are going to make it to where only well-funded dark money organizations are able to really um, solidly fund the work that it takes to get all those signatures in so many places. This is going to make our already terrible dark money problem in Missouri even worse if it passes. Okay. Thank you for that information. And again, thank you for the clarification on on whether the governor needs to sign or not. I learned something new tonight, which is great. Okay, great. I want to thank our guest today, uh, JMO, organizer and lead campaign strategist for MCU, and Alan Harris-Dalt, a leader with the MCU Legislative Task Force. Are you ready to join us in this work for justice in the St. Louis area and Missouri, the entire state? Contact us at 314 314- 367-3484 or email us at office at mcustl.com. Learn more about us and contribute to Metropolitan Congregations United on our website, mcustlewis.org. And also be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for news and events. I'm Kevin Prang, and you've been listening to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. Tune in again next time, and thank you for listening.